absolutely need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. This is Dave Debo. Thanks for joining us today. We've got quite a program on tap. In the second half of the program today, James Accurso is here from the U.S. Small Business Administration. He's in town specifically to help with relief after efforts after the Christmas blizzard. The Small Business Administration gives out loans, low-interest loans, to help businesses or homeowners who really were struck hard by the blizzard. And for the next two weeks until March 16th, they've actually set up remote locations here in town where you can go and get more information and apply. We'll be going through all of that, telling you where those locations are and what the eligibility is coming up at the back end of the program. But first, I'd like to talk a little bit about the Supreme Court. They have two cases pending before them, cases about social media, cases that will determine really whether they can be sued in a lot of different circumstances, including the top shooting here. Let me uh, start with some background on the case. In November 2015, ISIS terrorists carried out attacks in Paris. They injured 400 people. They killed 130. One of them was Nahomi Gonzalez. She was an American studying abroad. She was the first person in her family to graduate from college. Last month, lawyers for her family went to the Supreme Court challenging a law, a law that was enacted about uh, 25 years ago, that protects social media companies from what the families say is a role in aiding and abetting terrorist attacks. How the court rules really could be a game changer in the way social media is seen and treated, and it certainly trickles down to, again, the top shooting here. At the center of the case is something called Section 230 of the 1996 Communications Decency Act. Basically, what that says is that social media, it's not a free speech case, but that social media is exempt from being sued because it's really just a platform for other people's material. You don't sue the phone company for a conversation that two terrorists will have with each other. The phone company is merely connecting them and facilitating that conversation, but that under the law does not count as aiding and abetting. However, this case before the Supreme Court uh, is trying to change that a little bit. It's looking at the content not that's carried on the phone wires, but it's looking at the content that the Internet uh, providers, Google, the social media companies, put out on the net. The idea that if they put something out, that's just not a table of contents of what users are doing. If they put something out, that's a product that they are producing. And uh, let's say you build a car with bad brakes and someone dies because of that. That's a product that you can sue over. Or if a drug... Uh, has immense side effects and someone dies, that becomes a product you can sue over. So the Supreme Court is looking at how much of what they do is a product of their own that they could be sued for, 
and how much of it falls under this Communications Decency Act, which sort of gives them the shield and says, no, it's not your content. It's just content from other users. The case has huge relevance here because there are several attorneys in town that are trying to say social media created a product that radicalized Peyton Gendron, the top shooter. One of those attorneys is Kristen Elmore-Garcia. She was in Washington for those oral arguments last month, and she's with us now to talk a little bit about this. Uh, uh, Thanks so much for being here. Good morning, Dave, and thank you for having me. Your uh, firm represents the families of Andre McNeil? Yes. And you are trying to say that someone more than just the top shooter should be held responsible here, specifically social media. Yes, there are a few components here. So my office, the law office of John V. Elmore, PC, um, we represent not just the families of Andre McNeil, but also um, that of Catherine Massey and Deacon Hayward Patterson. Um, all three, unfortunately, lost their lives um, that day. That's, you know, it's burned in all of our memories sure. here, here in Western New York. Um, we are looking to see the ways in which the social media companies that really gave Gendron a platform and in many ways are responsible for continuing or progressing his radicalization into this white supremacist ideology. What ways are they responsible? Because we know an attack this big, you... It's the the primary responsibilities on the person who carried out the attack, but we're not interested solely in the singular person who took that final step to carry out the attack. What are the steps? You want to look at the societal factors because those, okay, Gendron may be in jail for life, he right. may be killed, but those societal factors remain and continue perhaps beyond this one case. Exactly. So how did we get to that point? Um, and... W- if, if you have read you know, the defendant's writings himself, he, he, de- he describes that he was exposed to some of these racist ideas, um, not just the ideas, but very technical and tricky, um, you know, weapons information mm. on actually how to modify his weapon, the best, um, you know, the best body armor that, that he could wear, um, being being exposed to, to previous similar attacks across the world, like in Christchurch. And all of these come together and sort of created the perfect storm where you take someone who is motivated to do something violent and therefore on the Internet all of a sudden has all of the knowledge and resources in the, in the world to actually plan out and carry out this attack. But if Joe Terrorist in New Zealand is putting something out about Christchurch, and the top shooter looks at that, how is the Internet company, social media, responsible, especially with the Communication Decency Act that, again, says it's kind of like the telephone. You can't hold the telephone company liable for conversation that they're not a party to. They're just conveying it. So let's let's take a step back and kind of look at where the Communications Decency Act Section 230 comes from, some of the logic behind why it was created. This, this is an act that was created in 1996. When you have an internet that largely functions as um, just more of an information database, more of a message board type of system where people are going on to very simple plain websites and pulling and accessing simple data. That's where you have the the origin of like the basic chat room, the basic message board. It's almost hard for us to picture the way that the internet worked 
and function 20, 30 years yeah. ago because, because it's so it's so fundamentally different the way we use it now. But this is this is existing. This law existed before the creation of these so-called content algorithms that are really displaying and being used as almost an advertising vehicle to, to make sure that your eyes as a consumer, as a viewer of these websites, are being matched up with specific data that those social media companies may find will either be interesting to you or more important than just simply being interesting, will we'll keep you engaged, which is something completely different than what you're interested in. So there it doesn't just become a passive telephone conversation. It becomes an active recruitment of your eyeballs. That That's the best way to put it. And, there, and there's almost two ways to look at what, like what is fundamentally wrong with, with plain old Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. So there's two sides. The first side I would say is... Does Section 230 need to be changed itself or updated to bring it into more of a modern standard in our usage of, of how we interact with, with Internet service providers? And then the flip side to that is, do social media companies engage in something different, fundamentally different nowadays, besides just hosting content provided by, by third parties? So... That's that's the two different ways you can think about it. I think most of us probably could agree that Section 230 is a little bit outdated, but I but we we believe that what the social media companies are doing, Facebook, which is owned by Meta, mm -hmm. YouTube, which is owned by, by Google. Google, exactly, Twitch, which is owned by Amazon, they're actually doing something different. Um, Besides just plain old hosting the data, when you access social media and the content that you encounter is is really designed and is designed for maximum engagement, maximum attention. So um, just look at the similarities between what happened in Gonzales versus what happened here in Buffalo. You have an innocent. Gonzales is one of the two cases before the court right now. Correct. And that's the one that I had the opportunity to actually witness and hear oral arguments live at the Supreme Court. So Gonzales was, like you described, a young woman who was studying abroad in Paris and she was she was killed in a shooting terrorist attack um, perpetrated by ISIS. And the the core of that case is that Gonzalez's family is stating that those terrorists who carried out the attack were were psychologically influenced and um, radicalized through their use of social media. In this case, YouTube, and that YouTube, therefore Google, is responsible for almost feeding and accelerating and and causing such extremism that led to the attack. And you spoke of the algorithm. That was part of the oral arguments. I want to play a small uh, uh, clip of it. I know you have some issues with uh, parts of this argument, but there was a point dur during the Supreme Court arguments where Eric Schnapper, the attorney representing family members of that uh, Jordanian woman who was killed, ended up debating things with Justice Clarence Thomas. I think you have to give us a a clear example of it, what your point is exactly. The same algorithm to present cooking videos to people who are interested in cooking uh, and uh, ISIS videos to people who are interested in ISIS, uh, racing videos to people who are interested in racing, 
then I think you're going to have to explain more clearly, if it's neutral in that way, how your claim uh, uh, is set apart from that. If I might turn to the practice of uh, displaying thumbnails, um, which is a, a, a major part of what's at issue here, the problem and the issue is not the manner in which YouTube displays videos. It actually displays, as you doubtless know from having looked at, uh, these little pictures, uh, which are referred to as thumbnails. Um, they're intended to encourage uh, the viewer to click on them and then go see a video. Uh, it's the use of algorithms to uh, generate these, these thumbnails that's at issue. And the thumbnails, in turn, uh, involve, us, uh, involve content created by the defendant. I know you have some issues with the way he framed his argument. Thumbnails are user-generated content in a lot of cases. But I think the core of what he was trying to say there was this was content that they are creating, which puts it in a completely different category than content they are just passing on. Correct. And, you know, the issue of plain thumbnails aside, I think what the attorney was trying to represent there was that the thumbnails that are displayed on a video are kind of meant to be enticing and meant to be encouraging for you to click on them and actually view the, the content. Um, and he was trying to distinguish the use of thumbnails by stating, you know, that's not a creation of the person who uploads the content, not the creation of the ISIS terrorist who's producing content about terrorism. I think he was trying to use the example of thumbnails by stating, you know, that's a publishing activity on YouTube's part itself. I don't think it's necessarily the perfect argument. Like you said, um, a lot of times it, the, the thumbnails themselves are user generated. But his argument there is essentially what it boils down to is that YouTube itself does sort of take um, positive actions in publishing material itself and it can come in many ways, you know, whether it, it, it takes the form of like which videos float to the top of your search results. And, and there was a lot of discussion in the court on that. Justice Clarence Thomas asked about the algorithms. Uh, you heard him say a little bit there about uh, people who want to see racing videos, the algorithm will feed them racing videos. People who want to learn about cooking will, will be fed videos about cooking. He even went off on a, an interesting tangent about uh, rice pilaf. Uh, people who want rice pilaf from Uzbekistan are going to get different videos than people who want rice pilaf from New Orleans, Creole rice pilaf. Uh, part of the point that I think he was raising is that the algorithm is neutral. The algorithm will work for rice pilaf and also for terrorism training videos. The algorithm is not, while it's a creation of YouTube and Google and those people, it doesn't have intent, and you can only hold them liable if there is intent. Buck back against that part of the argument. So I think Justice Thomas was, was really trying to state, you know, how, how could a social media platform be held liable for an extremist outcome when you know, the, the, the sort of idea of an algorithm is applied neutrally across the board of, of across subjects that are interesting to a user. But I think, I think Justice Thomas respectfully maybe had a, had a misunderstanding about the nature of what social media companies are for. They're really vehicles of, of, ad, of generating advertising revenue. 
So the goal of social media companies is to keep you engaged with the content for as long as humanly possible to display as many relevant advertisements as humanly possible throughout your experience interacting online. And there was a point later on um, during the oral arguments where Justice Neil Gorsuch brought up the idea of that advertising being a, a very um, powerful motivator on the on the part of social media companies itself. They're really advertising vehicles. So when when you start with the assumption that a social media algorithm is neutral across topics, subjects, whether it be cooking, racing, um, exercise, <laughs> exercising, rice, you know, no, no, it's not, it's not neutral across the board. The idea is, is engagement for the purpose of ad revenue. And what we find, and what I think maybe had been glossed over in this oral argument, is that simply looking up a racing video does not always pull up more racing videos. Simply looking up a cooking video doesn't always just simply pull up more cooking videos. We have, and part of our research in this case, is we have been able to demonstrate that, for example, the context of a young female, maybe a 12 or a young 13-year-old female who, who displays interest in healthy food or interest in exercising or maybe they're trying to put on some muscle for a softball season or volleyball season is that the algorithm kind of shifts its intention and shifts its focus so where you may start on healthy recipes over time the algorithm starts to show content geared toward anorexia and that it has been proven time and time again that if if the social media can peg you into a certain demographic and if you're looking for healthy food you will eventually be led down that path toward eating disordered content. And if you're looking for guns that can be modified to a mass shooting in Buffalo, your argument is that it's going to give that to you. Exactly. So you so you you may start out as a as someone I get, you know, I I I went to the University of Missouri out there they call it going plinking. <laughs> okay, so 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 you you may you may be interested in some content for guns with the interest of going plinking. Yeah. If, Hunting, shooting soda cans on the ex stump. Exactly. Yeah. So if you look at that content, you know, we're we're hoping to be able to demonstrate and hoping to be able to hold social media platforms liable for is that your interest, however basic entry-level interest you may have in guns, is going to eventually lead you down a path toward extremism to where you're not just shooting soda cans on the back porch. You're learning how to modify, um, you know, semi-automatic semi weapons by hand. All right. But there was a point in the discussion before the Supreme Court, and I want to play, play a clip of that, where not only were they talking about liability because it was a created product, something uh, independent of user-generated content, but they were also talking about liability in terms of knowledge or forethought that you can only hold, in this case, the, the discussion was about Google, that you could only hold Google responsible for Peyton Gendron's actions if they knew that he had ill intent beforehand and didn't stop him. I want to go back to the analogy at the start of the program. A drug manufacturer creates a drug with side effects, and they still put it out there. That's liability because they probably knew. A car manufacturer puts out a car with bad brakes and someone crashes and dies. 
that's liability because they probably knew the brakes were bad. Uh, but in this particular case, they tried to make the argument that unless they knew ill intent in advance, then liability just isn't there. We do not contend that there is no liability if these companies didn't know that the Reina nightclub would be attacked. What they had to have known to satisfy the operative language of the statute was that they were, in fact, providing substantial assistance to the act of international terrorism that injured the plaintiff, and that they knew that their action would substantially assist an act of international terrorism. The, the flight trainers who, provi- who taught the al-Qaeda terrorists how to fly planes so they could fly them into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon didn't need to know that those were the targets. But he needed to know that he was, in fact, providing substantial assistance to people who aim to use that knowledge in order to commit a terrorist attack. So So you would, uh, I assume you would agree that if I had a friend who was a mugger, a murderer, and a burglar. Hard to imagine. But other than that, he was a good guy. Uh, (laughs) And uh, I loaned him a gun, but not knowing and not wanting to know what he was going to do with it. Uh, that he that that possibly could be aiding and abetting. So I think it wouldn't be. Why? Because it would it while it would satisfy steps one and three of the Halberstam legal framework. You also have to have a general awareness that you are assisting in overall illegal or tortious activity. So, for example, if I have a farm and. I have a gate with my next-door neighbor's pasture, and it's got a padlock, and I don't—I can't open the padlock. And I go to you, you're my neighbor on the other side, and say, Justice Thomas, I'm trying to open this gate. Do you have any bolt cutters that could do this? And you say, yes, I do, and in fact, I'll cut the bolt for you. And I then use the open gate to steal my neighbor's sheep. You know that you provided substantial assistance to me in entering the property, but you don't have, you're not culpable within the meaning of the common understanding of the word aiding and abetting. So in that particular case, can you still say social media is responsible if they did not know that the shooter was going to drive to Buffalo and do what he did? Well, let's switch platforms here. Moving away from Google and looking more toward the side of Meta, you have um, documents that were presented before the U.S. Congress around 2017 that actually indicate that they knew that live streaming would inspire mass shootings. These are internal documents among content moderation divisions at the social media corporations where they discuss the risk-benefit analysis. So that would be like Occidental Chemical having a document that says these chemicals are bad, but we're still going to bury them in somebody's backyard, Love Canal. Absolutely. It's it's very much in the same vein. Um, Facebook has explicitly said and, and has produced internal chats and internal documents that stated, we know that live killings are going to happen on our Facebook live platform. So where do we step in with content moderation? Are we being too doom and gloom? Are we being too optimistic? Do we need tighter controls? I think 
in in the case of a Facebook, it is well documented that they knew that previous violent incidents occurring on their live streaming platforms would therefore inspire further violent incidents. Now, in the context of let's go back to YouTube. Okay, and that goal of really generating ad revenue, keeping the user engaged with the platform. If you go back to the eating disordered content Mm. example, you know, if an algorithm is designed to show increasingly, increasingly extreme content, encouraging um, restrictive eating patterns, encouraging throwing up, encouraging you know, teaching kind of how to hide your food consumption, how to really achieve an unrealistic thinness standard. Can you really say that they weren't aware that the person consuming that content was going to eventually succumb to and suffer from an eating disorder? It's it's this idea that revenue is generated based on how long you're staying on the app. Yeah. What's keeping you engaged on that app? A lot of times it's extremist content. It's it's designed to enrage. It's it's designed to hook you, and it, and it, and it does cover a variety of subjects. But if they're pushing out material that again is not something they create, if it's just user generated material, right? That's at the crux of this Supreme Court case. Here. Absolutely. So so, and I'm only using the eating disordered content yeah, no, example cool. just because it's so it's so easy to describe. So you know, YouTube does not produce the videos themselves there is a youtube studio and in certain circumstances you can say that youtube is paying content creators and bringing people into their studios to produce videos but we're talking about the run of the mill you shoot something on your phone upload it to youtube somehow it finds its way down the algorithm to me it's that idea of what gets prioritized in the algorithm and if you let it autoplay what's coming next all right so Regardless of what the Supreme Court rules, you are still moving ahead and eventually going to sue social media companies based on all the arguments we've discussed here. We have no choice. We have no choice but to. What if, in the interim, the Supreme Court comes down and says, yeah, the Communications Decency Law uh, Act gives them a shield here, gives them continued protection? Mm -hmm. Does your case then explode? No, not necessarily, and I think it's going to have to really hinge on um, what basis, um, you know, this appeal to the Supreme Court is either affirmed or or remanded or denied or remanded. You know, the, those are the only three outcomes. Either can, they can affirm it, they can deny it, or they can remand it for any number of legal analysis. We are going to have to work within that framework, but, um, you know, we still have a fundamental belief, belief right now that it is the algorithm itself, the the manner in which content is prioritized and refed to someone, whether you start searching something as innocent as um, religion and you're looking up basic religious text or basic history on religion, and then, you know, your content is becoming further radicalized down in down in ISIS extremism hole. Mm. Or or you could be innocently enough doing research on ISIS itself. And then you start to get exposed to more and more kind of convincing rhetoric and topic that gets you exposed to the ideas to the point where it's changing your mind. There's, there's so many different ways that this can play out. Attorney Kristen Elmore Garcia is here. She represents the families of Andre McNeil and Kat Massey. 
and Deacon Haywood Patterson, <coughs> excuse me, in a situation where they are trying to hold social media responsible for the tops shooting. We'll have more about some of the other areas beyond social media when we return from the break. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. Hi, it's Robin Young from NPR's Midday News Magazine here and now. We'll bring you all the news that happens between the morning headlines and the afternoon wrap-up, plus conversations with authors and artists, stories that affect you, maybe a story about you. So please join us for NPR's Midday News Magazine, here and now. Listen to Here and Now, weekdays at 1 p.m. Travel is one of life's great rewards, and there's always something new to see and experience when you travel the world like I do. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Join me as we get better acquainted with the world each week on Travel with Rick Steves. Together, we'll explore fascinating sights, discover amazing food, and make new friends from near and far. Your radio is the only passport you'll need. Join us for Travel with Rick Steves, Sunday afternoons at 1 on 88.7 FM WBFO. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And this is Dave Debo. We are continuing our discussion with Kristen Almore-Garcia, representing some of the families killed uh, that had uh, loved ones killed in the top shooting. Earlier in the program, we talked quite a bit about social media and how they're endeavoring to hold them accountable and how the Supreme Court is reviewing some of the issues related to that. But there are two other groups that I think you are also looking at, weapons manufacturers and body armor for the next 10 minutes or so. And we'll be talking about the blizzard and relief uh, in just a little bit. But for the next 10 minutes or so, tell me about how you hold a gun manufacturer responsible, because there is also something there akin to the community, uh, 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 the, the Decency Act, the Communications Decency Act. There's a shield in place there, a law that says you can't necessarily hold the guns responsible for the acts that people do with them. How do you get around that? So you're you're perfectly correct. There is a federal law that does provide immunity to gun manufacturers. Now, luckily in our state, we do have a consumer protection law that can protect you know, innocent victims um, in, in a product's liability sense. And So again, you're trying to make it akin to the car with bad brakes. So, yeah, very similar. Um and our law is modeled after a similar law um, that was written in Connecticut. Um, and we are fortunate enough to, to partner with the law office of Koskoff, Koskoff, and Beter, which were success- Who successfully argued in Connecticut. Exactly. What was the basis of their argument there? So the basis of their argument there came in the aftermath of Sandy Hook, which is another equally horrific mass shooting. Um, and, what, and what we found is that the weapon used in Sandy Hook 
is the same weapon that was used here in Buffalo. And there's a whole online subculture of people who are almost worshiping this particular weapon for its use in carrying out violent extremism acts. So um, in in the Sandy Hook case, they um, successfully sued Remington for, for multiple millions of dollars, and they actually caused Remington to go bankrupt in the aftermath of of suing them successfully and getting some sort of compensation for those for those parents. And was the argument that they were creating a a product that is faulty that they knew was being used by people with ill intent? Not just that, but targeting it in a, in a way um, that makes so it... So they're marketing, just like the social media. Exactly. Oh, okay. Marketing it um, through the use of, of licensing it in video games and first-person shooter games. Marketing it using sort of racist iconography or even just plain old patriotic iconography. Tying it with, the, with themes of masculinity, tying it with themes of patriotism, th- tying it with themes of you need this and instilling fear in their consumers to create a, like a violent swirl or a storm of people who are really attracted to and drawn to this particular weapon to carry out. But isn't marketing free speech? Marketing marketing is free speech. It certainly is. But, but free speech can be limited when it is causing violent extremist outcomes. Calling fire in a crowded theater. Exactly. And that's the argument you plan on pursuing there. So we do, we do plan on trying... So. We have the attorneys directly, Josh Koskoff and Eleanor Sterling. They were also successful in getting a $2 billion verdict against Alex Jones for right. harassing. Infowars. Yes, for harassing the, the Sandy Hook families afterward. And, jo- and both Josh and Eleanor have come to Buffalo many of times. They have been to Tops. They have met with, with some of the, the surviving victims' family members personally. They are going to be an excellent help, but they they have the playbook against Remington. the 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 main challenge there is that you have Remington that ultimately filed bankruptcy. I was going to say, if if they've got no money, then you can't get money out of them. So that's that's part of the challenge. That's part of the investigation. That's why we're not limiting ourselves to only one silo. But the, our belief is that they still are liable, and that we still have to try. And then you have another um, you have another silo, which we would call. The body armor. Yep, the, I was just going to go there. The tactile, the tactile gear, and if you read the shooter's writing, he does a lot of extensive, extensive research in choosing and selecting and purchasing what he believed would be the best body armor that would help him safely carry out the tech. Um, and we did, we did unfortunately lose a, a hero, Aaron Salter, who tried to fight back. Um, and, and Gendron was unfortunately protected. He was, he was safe and cozy in his body armor. And was there any documentation or something that he read on the internet that said this body armor will, and I'm sure it didn't use these words, will allow me to carry out a mass shooting? Is there a, forgive the phrase, a smoking gun there? Like, like you were saying earlier with the, the bulimia and the anorexia, is there knowledge of forethought that said, this body armor is great if you're going to do something bad. You have sales agents working directly for the body armor manufacturers conducting direct-to-consumer sales activity through social media platforms. And there's one specific I can think of that occurred on Reddit. There is a body manuf- body armor manufacturer plate company, and they have a sales agent who had public message board chats 
directly with the shooter, recommending the best type of consumer protection with knowledge of what the shooter was wanting to do now now that part gets a little fuzzy did he, okay do, do you do you sell body armor um you know i guess i guess what it boils down to is why does an 18 year old yeah, need military yeah. grade body armor you're so not... the assumption would be if you're selling this to an 18 year old you have an inkling of maybe how he's going to use it. What are they? What are they going to use it for? They're the not. The deer doesn't shoot back. Exactly, the deer does not shoot back. So why do sales agents have direct consumer sales activity going on back and forth with the teenager on a social media platform? So there's some intersectionality in terms of who's liable for what content on what platform and when and how it occurred. But I I, I think when you look at it holistically, when you look at it in a whole picture, social media played a big role in all parts of this. You spoke earlier about the win that was brought in court against gun manufacturers because of Sandy Hook. Correct. Um, Remington is bankrupt. How symbolic are these wins? Let's say you're successful in all these cases. Uh, the, the Supreme Court discussion, the body armor, and the gun. Um, Remington was found in, in error in Sandy Hook, but they still made a gun that was used here in Buffalo. Are these symbolic wins, other than the money that may go to the families, are these symbolic wins that you think could change society, or is it just a way to compensate families? It it has to it has to play both roles. Nobody wants to be the third, fourth, fifth family that becomes the victim of of a racist, white supremacist motiv- motivated terrorist mass shooting. We're doing this with the hope that they will change. Money is a powerful motivator when it comes to changing. And you know what? After after Sandy Hook, Remington did fundamentally change the way they advertise. They did they? Okay. Yes, I there, did not know that. There is a there is a change in advertising. Now would you or I say it's enough? You know, that that's a different story. But there was a change. So, you know, we need we need to become agents of change and push more change to to hopefully prevent this proliferation of of these dangerous weapons and and the ideals that fuel the horrific attacks and the combination of the two coming together. As we wrap up here, let's talk timetable. Is there any indication when the Supreme Court decisions could come down? I know they don't publish in advance and say, hey, we're going to do it on October 12th. But is there a sense at least of when this issue could be resolved at the federal level. Supreme Court decisions usually come out around May or June. So if we hear if we heard an oral argument last month, you know, we should be pretty hopeful to hear uh, a written decision out of the Supreme Court, you know, either sending it back to the Ninth Circuit in California or affirming or denying, you know, the the parts of the arguments in some way about midsummer. All right. And what sort of timetable are you on on behalf of the families? Um, well, we, we've got a lot of research going. Obviously, 230 will influence that. Um, we, we've got a couple rough drafts of complaints. Nothing is finalized yet. Mm-hmm. I imagine, too, uh, that in this particular case, uh, I know that there are what, what some have told me are terabytes of information that are being held by the feds as part of their trial of the shooter. Um, I imagine that that court proceeding also influences your timetable, especially if 
they end up unsealing that information and you get access to all that information. Ideally, we would, of course, like to have access. You know, we have we have some software um, for our own personal use and capability that really can paint a very clear picture of of the escalation and the times of use of social media and and just that that rabbit hole path. Right now, the federal government does not want to release that information to the family's victims. Um, it's 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 our opinion that that's necessarily the wrong that that's probably the wrong way to handle it. Um, but I, I I can't imagine you know what what reasons the federal government has for not wanting to share that data with the with the victims' families. The the case is still pending in federal court. They're probably not going to release that until that uh, is finalized in some way. Right now, there is a protective order in federal court that says that the protective order itself will su- survive the life of the case. And and if you read it in, in those terms, it it's going to it's going to last indefinitely unless there's some sort of policy change. So that particular event doesn't affect your timetable. Correct. All right. Thanks so much for doing this. Thank in, you for having me. Enlightening discussion, Kristen Elmore Garcia. She represents the families of Kate Bassey and Bishop Haywood Patterson and Andre McNeil trying to look at the roles of social media in light of the top shooting. And again, some of the Supreme Court uh, cases that are pending, two of them with oral arguments last month where she was there. Coming up next, we'll talk about the blizzard, storm, winter storm Elliot. James Accurso from the U.S. Small Business Administration is here. He's going to talk about loans and eligibility guidelines and deadlines. So much to learn there. Stay with us. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. Are you looking for a rewarding career in public media? Visit WNED.org careers to learn more about becoming a part of a talented team dedicated to making a difference in our communities. Employees at Buffalo Toronto Public Media enjoy a variety of outstanding benefits. We are located in downtown Buffalo, and we have free parking. We are focused on inclusivity and belonging. Come as you are and apply today. Visit WNED.org slash careers. So... Where are you? Here at Radio Lab, we go places. Riding in an elevator. From her bathroom. Walking through shin-length grass. Are we in a boat? No, but we're going to be. In Namibia. On Mars. In my closet. Poughkeepsie, New York. To... Kolkata. Inside the womb. Wow. And... Everywhere. You guys are going to have a lobster talk. No. Saturdays at 2 p.m. on WBFO. Overparenting puppies. I'm Bob Hershon, and this is Science Update. So-called helicopter parents are accused of stifling their children's independence by doing too much for them. Now, a similar phenomenon may explain why some potential guide dogs fail to successfully graduate from their training. University of Pennsylvania animal behaviorist Emily Bray followed 98 puppies from birth. We found that the amount of mothering really mattered. And somewhat surprisingly, the mothers who were more hands-on with their puppies and were around more, those puppies, when they grew up, were actually less likely to become guide dogs. But more self-reliant puppies grow up to be independent, ignore distractions, and tolerate the unpredictable, qualities that characterize successful guide dogs. She and her colleagues write in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that they don't yet know what accounts for the parenting differences. I'm Bob Hershon for AAAS, the Science Society. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. 
To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And good morning. Welcome back to uh, Buffalo What's Next. This particular conversation needed for those who perhaps suffered damage during the Christmas blizzard here in Buffalo. The uh, United States Small Business Administration uh, offering loans to people for help if they qualify. Jim Accurso is a public affairs specialist with the Small Business Administration. And actually, Jim has a is part of a very select small part, not small, but significant part of the Small Business Administration. And yep. I'm going to let you tell us the title. Okay, yeah, Jay, that's the Office of Disaster Recovery and Resilience. That's, that's a new uh, differentiation for us. We were the Office of Disaster Assistance, but we are the Office of Disaster Recovery and Resilience. And we are here in Buffalo to help, again, you, uh, as you mentioned, folks that have damages related to the uh, December 23rd through the 28th blizzard. And you have set up two centers where people can go and get help, sign up for these loans or work their way through the applications. Uh, One's at the Delaware and Grider Grider Center in Buffalo. Uh, The other one out in Cheektowaga at the what is called the Emergency Operations Center or Fire Training Center on Broadway. Exactly, exactly. Well. Six days a week, uh, customer service reps are at uh, Delavan Grider, 9.30 to 6, and they're at the EOC in Cheektowaga, 9 to 6, Monday through Friday, and then 10 to 2 on Saturdays. All right, so the word has already gotten out because you've had some applications already. Had some, over 100 applications, right? We uh-huh. have, and we and we have written some loans, and we are uh, we are encouraging more folks to come in and sit down and talk with a trained customer service rep, and uh, you know get their questions answered, and hopefully get their applications in. Because one of the things that happens, and this is interesting, you and you said even yesterday there was an example of somebody who came in had been rejected online, mm-hmm. and yeah. after sitting down with someone yesterday. Uh, the, the progress was considerably different. Exactly. So if if, if by chance they're they are they find they've been uh, had their application kicked back, we do encourage them to reapply, come back in, talk to a service rep. Many times, um, you know, it, it's maybe a, a box wasn't checked or, or a signature is missing. Uh, so we do encourage uh, folks to come in and talk to us. Actually, when the application process goes down the line, the process itself is going to take about five weeks before they're actually going to talk to a loan officer and get the loan. Uh, and the loans are no obligation. I want to I want to stress that there's no fee to apply and there's no obligation. But through that longer process, when they do get a letter from us and it's going to be spelled out why they were found ineligible, bring that paperwork in and sit down and talk to us. Because there's a possibility that, again, it could have been of a small error of right. some regard yeah. and does not necessarily uh, give an overall picture of, of your eligibility. Right, and not uh, 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 missing a piece of paperwork or you know required paperwork. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't yeah. know about you, Jim, but I think overall, wouldn't it? Is it better just maybe just for someone like me to go sit down with somebody and talk rather than try to work my way through a computer? It is, yeah, yeah. Because it, it can be a little daunting online. You know, we, we, you know, today we do everything online, right? And, and it, it's, you know, you got to follow through the process, but, but you are going to work with a trained customer service rep. Uh, you're going to, you're going to have a keyboard there in front of you for, to be, to, so you can be able to key in your own personally identifiable information. Um, and they'll follow you through the process and, and you can be on your way in about an hour or so. Yeah. Okay. Now let's talk about eligibility in this sense. Mm-hmm. Somebody owns a home, uh, 
has had damage of some regard. Roof damage seems to be the one that I hear the most about. What what falls under the eligibility requirement to perhaps qualify for one of these loans that could help recover from that damage? Well, the, the, <clears throat> so the major eligibility is that the damage had to happen between the 23rd and the 28th of December. So that's on the declaration. Um, that's on all. Uh, what if I had an old roof? And we're talking about some old housing stock here in Buffalo. What if it was an old roof, but it it took it, it took the plunder during that storm. Like, likely they're eligible. And again, come in and talk to us. Get the application in. When the application goes up for review, that's where the decision will be made by a, by a loan officer. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. and but, again, these are loans. Yes, these are loans. These are long-term, low-interest loans, uh, as low as three uh, percent. Which is pretty good uh, yeah, these days, and lower. Um, and also, uh, when the loans, uh, the loans today, uh, if you do get awarded a loan, <clears throat> the payment, your payments will be deferred for twelve months, interest free. So there'll be no accrued interest during that time. So um, we we encourage folks to come in, and again, you know, see if they're eligible, and and um, you know, take advantage of the terms. We're talking with uh, Jim Accurso from the small uh, U.S. Small Business Administration about uh, disaster loans that are available to uh, folks who had endured damage during the Christmas storm. Uh, Jim laid out the the dates already. Uh, you know, Jim, when you were talking about low interest loans and delayed payments and things like that, almost thought too good to be true. Mm-hmm. And this is something you brought up to me, how important it then becomes to have a trusted voice, not a government person, but somebody else who is helping to tell people and get that message out that this is help that is available and it really is a, a good deal. Yes, yes, very good point. And when, that's what we encourage you. If you're, you know, you're listening today, you may not have had damage, but you know someone who has, encourage them to talk to us, you know, maybe take them online yourself, have them go through the process, you know, sba.gov forward slash disaster. Uh, you can apply at disasterloanassistance.sba.gov. If somebody doesn't have a computer and they want to get a paper application by mail, they can call our 800 number, which is 659-2259, and and get information, too, as well, mailed to them. I know the uh, Erie County folks uh, hooked you up with us uh, to get you in here. So is there information available through uh, county agencies and such as well? County agencies, uh, we work with, and I'm working with municipalities, chambers of commerce, uh, reaching out to any stakeholders we can to get our flyers posted, to get our information out, you know, about the loan program. So we have three types of loans. We have the business physical damage loans, and those are up to $2 million. So those are for business owners to recover any uh, disaster damage property, real estate, inventories, and the like. Um, and and uh, we also have the economic injury disaster loans, and that's for a business owner who may have had a setback, couldn't do business because of the storm. They couldn't get out to talk to their clients or like a restaurant. <clears throat> clients couldn't come to them. You know, they were shut down. They Those are the working capital loans. You know, they still have to, you know, uh, make payroll and, and, and pay the utilities and things like that. So we can maybe help with those. The economic injury loans, the deadline for those to apply are is November 27th. But the business physical damage loans and the home disaster loans, which we also offer, again, a lot of folks don't know that we offer loans to homeowners and renters, the deadline for those is April 28th. So the centers close on March 16th, but the deadline to apply is online is the 28th of April. Now, Jim, our time is short, so I don't want to overcomplicate this, but as you were talking as well, I'm getting 
maybe I you know if I have a business or I'm a homeowner, I might already have some insurance that's going to help me out perhaps down the road. Mm-hmm. That does not preclude or does not disqualify me from applying for this no, loan? No, it doesn't disqualify you. You know, the, your loan amount will be adjusted for any other uh, funding that funding sources that you may have gotten to for your repair or replacement of, you know, your, your contents or your structure. Right. So we, so if you, if you have already talked to an insurance agent uh, and got that in the works, still come in and talk to us. If you haven't yet, don't, you don't need to wait. Again, uh, time is of the essence, too, if you want to come in and talk to somebody. Like it's, we're, it's a week from today, you know, where the centers are going to be closing at 4 o'clock on the 16th. Okay, so next, so the, they're, they're closing next week. Okay. Yes, yes. How has been uh, traffic at uh, the Delavan Grider Center? Traffic's been very good. Traffic's been very good. We, uh, we even added a staff, so we've got four trained customer service reps uh we got folks come in there they can sit and wait and you know sit down and talk to talk to someone the process takes like i said about an hour um you know but um we are going to help you through it um as, as best we can you know and and we're, we're um i was there saturday and see not saturday we had a pretty good crowd coming in so um <clears throat> the emergency operations center not as much. So again, if you have an option um, and time is, is is a little short, I, I might encourage folks if they can to get over to uh, the center in Chictawaga. You know, you uh, spend a lot of time on the road and it's interesting you also mentioned how resiliency is now in the title. Mm-hmm. There's a reason for that. There is a reason for that, you know, because because of the, you know, the intensity of the storms that are that are occurring. And we even offer on top of the loan amount, we will uh, um, offer uh, help for mitigation. So if you could put in place uh, anything that could keep this situation from happening again to your home or business, you know, say you maybe do some kind of, uh, um, you know, uh, reinforcing so you don't have an ice dam or you don't have, uh, uh, you know, flooding in your basement, put in a sump pump. Or any you know any any type of a mitigation measure, you can get additional funding and in addition to the amount of the loan that you're ultimately awarded, up to twenty percent. So, you know we we are um, aiming to help folks you know down the line to you know again to become more resilient. And you you of course have been visiting a lot of these sites, but you shared with me visiting Kentucky mm-hmm. after that flooding that occurred that. Yeah. It was unbelievable. I mean, just you know what what that's like, and what it's like trying to to connect with people. Trying to connect to people, yeah. When they're isolated, number one, right? As a Kentucky, you know, folks can get back up in them hollers, as they call them. Um, but even two, even just getting the message out, even even here in a community like Buffalo, again, folks don't know what we can offer to them, or they may be on the fence, or at the very least, they've been through a you know a traumatic experience, and it's you know back burner, back burner. I'll get to it. I'll get to it. Well, you know, when the deadlines the deadlines are creeping up, you know, we want we want to work with you, you know, of course, up to that deadline um, and, you know, get the message shared, you know, know that we can help people. There's a way to be helped in the, the centers. We'll have in-person folks there till next Friday out at the Emergency Operations Center in Cheektowaga, the Fire Training Center, whatever you want to call it, on Broadway, yeah. and also at the Delavan Grider Community Center as well. Jim, uh, we're winding up on time here, but then again, numbers for folks to call and uh, website, uh, website probably the best way to just uh, clear it. Website is, 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 so that's disasterloanassistance.sba.gov. And like I mentioned, if somebody wants a paper application, they can call 800-659-2955. But again, the best way is to get into a center 
We're sitting there. We're waited. Uh, we're waiting. We're trained. We're experienced. We're ready to help. Take advantage of it. Low interest loans that could perhaps help you recover from the Christmas storm. Jim McCurso, thanks for uh, coming in and talking. Thanks for us. having us on there on uh, NPR today, Jay. Always uh, great to have you along. That's yep. for sure. And everybody else who's listening to Buffalo, what's next here on your NPR station in Western New York? Member supported WBFO and WBFO HD One Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown.